Thank you. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the conclusion of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and I will invite you to reply, thanks be to God. Today's reading is found in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend what is, with all the saints, what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Wesley, you guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning. My name is Ian. If I haven't a chance to meet you, I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And at this time, I'm going to uh, dismiss our kiddos who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids today. So if you are in the uh, preschool room, feel free to slide on over to this door over here. Uh, you're going to meet Miss Molly. And then if you are in K through 1, you're going to be hanging out with uh, Mr. Augie over here. We're rocking the backwards hat directing traffic. He's got the sign looking official. So uh, you guys have fun back there. Elementary, we're excited to have you guys in service today. We do have those clipboards available in the connection room if that would help you and uh, serve you well during this time. Uh, but man, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, typically uh, during this time, either myself or one of our pastors would uh, come up and preach uh, the sermon this morning. But uh, today we have a real treat to hear uh, from a guest and a really good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Josh Hughes and he and his family are here this morning. So let me give you a little background on who Josh is. Uh, we were talking yesterday. Uh, it's coming up on 15 years here soon, which makes me feel old and you older since you're a little bit older than me. So uh, Josh has been a dear friend of mine for a long time. Uh, he was my pastor when I was a college student. Uh, he married my wife and I, and we have uh, just maintained a really good friendship uh, over the years. And so he is the uh, lead pastor and church planter of Four Oaks East uh, up in Tallahassee. So if you know anybody looking for a church in Tallahassee, uh, please talk to Josh afterward. Uh, they're doing a great thing up there. And uh, if I could say a few things about Josh, there's a lot of, as pastors, we pick up a lot of influences. We like to read, right? We're nerds. We have a lot of voices that we uh, listen to. But uh, Josh is uh, just a huge, huge influence for me. Somebody I really look up to. He's been a big brother uh, in ministry for me for a long time. Uh, he's a godly man. He's a good shepherd to his flock. And uh, he's somebody that we have been trying to get to come and preach at the King's Church. Uh, he was on the schedule for April 2020. You might remember Things were a little crazy. So the trade-off is he's not preaching in an elementary school cafetorium, but he's preaching in this room this morning. So uh, really excited for you guys to hear. His church, by the way, also supported our chapel campaign to help us get in here. And uh, we're just really grateful for the partnerships. So, yeah, let's, let's welcome Josh. And thanks for being here. Thanks, man. We'll give it an awkward It's hand. an awkward man hug on the... Well, good morning, King's Church. It's great to be with you today. Um, man, what a beautiful building this is. Um, but even more beautiful than this building is uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, the place where the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display 
for the world to see, and uh, it's just a thrill and a treat uh, to be with you. Many old friends uh, here, and uh, some new ones, Lord willing, uh, by the time we're done. Um, I love Ian. I have this vivid memory of sitting in a Starbucks, 2008, uh, to getting ready to do a membership interview with a college student I never met. And I've done ministry for a couple of decades in a college town, met a lot of college students in my day. Um, but when Ian showed up and sat down, it took me about like two and a half minutes to realize, oh, this, this, kid's, this kid's different. Um, he, next thing you know, uh, he was a part of our community group. Uh, we were meeting together to read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, having good conversations over that. And I remember thinking at one point, oh, man, God's like forming a pastor right here uh, in front of my eyes. And uh, I, I'm not always right. I don't always call him right. Uh, but I got that one right. And uh, thanks be to God for, uh, for your friendship, man. You have become such a beloved brother and trusted uh, ministry confidant and counselor. And uh, I'm just so grateful for your friendship and for your partnership uh, in the gospel. And uh, Ian and Molly and their kids are so dear to our family. And it's just a thrill. Uh, for us to be here uh, with them uh, and with you. And it's a thrill uh, as well to just to be able to, to experience the grace that God's been giving in and through the King's Church. I've been praying for the King's Church since it was just an idea. And to see it now, to see what God is doing, just gives me so much joy. And so uh, it's a thrill to be with you today, and it's a thrill uh, to be uh, leading us in the consideration of this beautiful text on prayer from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. The title uh, of my message this morning is Prayer's Power to Form and to Fill. Prayer's Power to Form and to Fill. So let's pray and commit our time in the Word to the Lord. Jesus, we just acknowledge and confess up front that prayer isn't easy. It's interesting that your disciples... At least it was never recorded for us in the Gospels, your disciples coming to you and saying, Jesus, would you teach us to teach like you do? They never said, Jesus, will you teach us to have spiritual authority like you have or to discourse with the Pharisees the way you discourse with the Pharisees, but your, your, your disciples did come to you in Luke chapter 11 and say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And we take their request as our request this morning as we consider your word. We ask as we open it up together that the Holy Spirit would come, that you would unseal our hearts, that you would unveil our eyes, would you unstop our ears so that we could behold Christ in this text and that we would leave changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I read a book recently called Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. Anna Lemke is the... Uh, the chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University. And she is uh, a leading uh, sort of specialist in the opioid e epidemic that's going on uh, in the West right now. And she made sort of a throwaway comment uh, about the smartphone. She said that the smartphone is the hypodermic needle of the wired generation. And she makes the point that uh, if you're addicted to your iPhone, that's because that's how the iPhone was designed, right? It was designed to get you addicted to it. It's expertly crafted to attach your eyes to it because Silicon Valley has figured out how to monetize your attention. And the more that you engage with your device, the more you click, the more that you unlock, the more that you tap and scroll and whatnot, the better the metrics look and the more money that they can make either in selling you things directly or monetizing your eyeballs indirectly through advertising. 
Martin Weigel, who uh, is an advertising executive who was sort of the brains behind some of the biggest campaigns Nike has done, uh, wrote a blog post a few years ago on Medium, and he acquainted, uh, the, he acquainted the, equated the business of monetizing your attention to fracking. Do you know what fracking is? That's um, it's using concentrated pressure to open up uh, reservoirs deep in rock formations to get access to natural resources that you would never be able to access before. So he says it's basically your attention is being fracked in a process that Weigel calls synaptic imperialism. It's a pretty vivid phrase, right? Synaptic imperialism. There's a, a pillaging and a conquering of your brain synapses and thought patterns in the name of getting you to spend money and to make money on your attention. Here's a quote from Martin Weigel's article. He said, hijack people's cognitive processes, leave some memory traces, reinforce and refresh them repeatedly over time, and extract the financial rewards that lie in so doing. High fives and cigars all around. So if you have a smartphone, I've got one. We are all participants in the attention economy, and it's big business. And business is good for the tech companies who stand a profit off of it. And the stakes in all of that um, are probably much higher than you might think. So having said all that by way of introduction, you might be saying, all right, all right, Josh, like you're coming in a little hot this morning. I appreciate that. I'm only on my second cup of coffee. Like, what are we doing? And what does this have to do with prayer? Well, I would like to uh, contend this morning that this has everything to do with prayer. Because we can't talk about prayer without talking about attention. And one of the things that's, I think, so, um, so maybe scary is not the right word, but maybe uninterrogated and unwise is the way that our attention just goes to our devices all the time. There's a, a poet uh, named Mary Oliver who I heard her, I read this, in, in, I read this uh, line from one of her poems, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head since. She says, attention is the beginning of devotion. And prayer, ultimately, when you boil it down, is fundamentally about attention. It's about carving out space in your mind and in your heart to step into a lived experience of what's ours in Christ. Perhaps, more than ever, in an age like ours, praying is prying, right? Praying is prying. It's prying your attention away from sort of the relentless distraction and endless clamoring of our noisy age and lashing our attention to all that God is for us in Christ. That's the challenge of prayer in an age of distraction. It's to give your attention to God. And we do that because we are convinced from Scripture that God wants to give us something as we do. The main point I want us to see this morning in this text is this. Attending to God in prayer is how he takes you from here to there. Attending to God in prayer is how he takes you from here to there. God wants to take you where you are and take you somewhere. He wants to form something in you. He wants to see Christ formed in you. He wants to see you filled with all the fullness of God, Paul has said in this text. And the way that we get there is by prayer. You've been talking in this series uh, about this idea of gospel doctrine and gospel 
culture. And if you're not familiar with just the language of the gospel, maybe you're new, maybe you just saw that a new church is in this building and you don't know what that word means. Gospel is just a, a word that means good news. It's the good news of, of the announcement that God, through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, has brought about salvation and all of the fulfillment of all of his Old Testament promises. It's good news that Jesus is rescuing sinners from the judgment of God. He's reconciling a people to himself and to one another in the church, and he is renewing all things. He's renewing his creation forever. You could say the gospel, it's good news for you, it's good news for us, and it's good news for everything. And for 2,000 years, everywhere this gospel doctrine has been proclaimed and heralded and shouted out, dead things have been coming to life. Gospel doctrine begins in your head. That's where it engages first, but it's not meant to stay there, right? Gospel doctrine is meant to form a gospel culture, and if that formation is going to happen, that doctrine has to make the uh, arduous, difficult journey down what is perhaps the most uh, treacherous 18-inch stretch of highway in existence. It's got to go from your head to your heart. And how does that happen? Well, it happens by prayer. It happens through prayer. Prayer makes gospel doctrine come alive in our souls, and it makes it come alive in the culture of a church. And so if you want to be formed in the ways of God and filled with all of the fullness of God, it happens through prayer. So in these verses, Paul offers what uh, one commenter, uh, S.M. Baugh, he calls this a, um, an intercessory prayer report. So he's sort of praying but he's addressing God and he's addressing the Ephesians as he does. So he wants to pray, but he also wants to instruct the Ephesians and us about prayer as he does. And he's going to describe in this prayer all of the blessings that are ours, all of these things that God wants to form in us as his people as the gospel takes root in us. And he wants to pray that they'll be formed in us. And prayer is the means by which these things are formed in us. Thomas Watson has a great quote about this. He talks about uh, this idea of the gospel blessings as a tree of promise. And he says, the tree of promise will not drop its fruit unless it is shaken by the hands of prayer. It's a bit of an analogy, right? So if you can just sort of in your mind's eye imagine that we're looking at all of these blessings that God has for us in Christ, and we've got our arms around the trunk of the tree, and we want to shake it with our prayers to see these things fall down so that we can receive them and be blessed by them. We want to shake the tree of God's promise today in prayer. Attending to God in prayer is how God takes you from here to there. So we're going to see four ways that prayer does that. Number one, in prayer we attend to the care of the triune God. In prayer we attend to the care of the triune God. might just be helpful, uh, what is a good sort of working definition of prayer? Well, historically, uh, in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, which was used uh, to teach basically the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, it defines prayer this way. It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for the things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Maybe you hear something uh, of the way that your church does its liturgy in that definition. And that's a good start. But Paul's really aiming at our imagination here in these verses. He's talking about breadth and length and height and depth. So let's, let's go a level deeper. Let me give you a, a church father who's going to take us in a more imaginative, imaginative direction 
of what prayer is. John Chrysostom in the fourth century defined prayer like this. He said, prayer is an all-efficient armor. It's a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. He goes on later to say, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, broken the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, and assuaged diseases, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. This is what we're stepping into when we pray. This is the power that we're laying hold of as we attend to the care of the triune God. And when we come to this powerful reality in prayer, we find that there is a God who loves us and is ready to receive us and attend to us with his care. In context, you heard a great message from Pastor Pat last week. I listened to it um, as I was prepping this week, and he drew out this point. Paul is encouraging the church to not lose heart because it's in the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display for the world to see. And he describes this reality of how God is preserving his church and manifesting his glory and his goodness in a sort of triune way. It's a triune reality. Paul's apostleship is a steward of the gracious plan of God the Father, chapter 3, verse 1. It's given to unfold the mystery of Christ, chapter 3, verse 4. And it's been revealed through the apostles and prophets by the Spirit, chapter 3, verse 5. And he carries on this sort of Trinitarian language and Trinitarian framework as he goes. God is three in one, three persons, one essence. We're not going to get into a whole doctrine of the Trinity here. Pastor Ian would love to explain it to you after church. If you have questions about it, he has lots of analogies that actually are not heresy. And so it'll be great. You should ask him about it. Um, but the point is, all, the, all three persons of the Trinity are present and active not only in the governing of creation, but also in the strengthening and the blessing of his people in prayer. The God who has acted and is acting in history to save a people for himself and to renew the whole creation also loves us personally and has gifts that he wants to give us as he takes us from where we are to where he wants us to be. In prayer, we attend to the care of the triune God. We pull up a chair in his presence to experience his nearness and his goodness. It's the first thing we see about prayer in this text. And we're going to think in our next three points in a Trinitarian way about how God wants to form us and fill us through prayer. Our second point, the second thing we see about prayer is this. In prayer, we access the cash of the Father's riches. Now, cash, that's not C-A-S-H, like cash money, Right? Um, I got a little clever with my alliterations here. Sorry, I'm a preacher. I can't help it. Um, <laughs> and so it's not cash money. Uh, I don't know if you remember or not when uh, the NFL player Randy Moss got fined for making a, an obscene gesture. Do you remember this? A reporter asked him if he had written a check to pay his fine yet, and he said, when you're rich, you don't write checks. Straight cash, homie. Um, <laughs> I can't even say the word cash without thinking about that story. Uh, it's apropos of nothing. The point is that's not the kind of cash that we're talking about here. We don't mean cash like straight cash, homie. We mean uh, cash like a collection of valuable assets and resources that are hidden away and stored in a secure place, sort of like uh, Pastor Ian's cash of dry fit FSU polos, right? He's got, a, he's got a cache of them. 
You can't get to it, though, because it's securely hidden away. The cash that we access in prayer is the riches of our Father in heaven. And here's the amazing thing. That cash of resources and riches is yours because it's family money. It's family resources. It's so interesting. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the, and we expect him to say what? King's church. King. We expect him to say the king. You bow your knee before the king. And is God a king? Of course he is. He's a sovereign. He's a creator. He's a ruler. He's a just judge. He is all of those things, but that's not what Paul says. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's being a little bit Jesus-y here, right? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't say pray our King, our Ruler, our Lord. He said pray our Father in heaven. God is your Father because one of the blessings of union with Christ is adoption. And union with Christ is really, really important. I'm sure you've been well taught in this doctrine. Here's how we talk about this at our church. Because you've been united to Jesus Christ, all that's true of Christ by rights is true of you by grace. And all that belongs to Jesus Christ by rights belongs to you by grace because you've been united to him by faith. Jesus earns all of the blessings of the gospel. He earns them with his perfect obedience and his perfect submission to the Father. And then we receive it by grace as we're united to him. And so when Jesus was baptized, what did the Father's voice say from heaven? This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Pastor Ian and I share an affinity for Eugene Peterson. and His version of this in the message says, This is my Son, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. And here's the thing I want you to see. If it's true of Jesus, it's true of you. If God looks at Jesus that way, if you've been united to him by faith, that's the way God looks at you. He says those words over you. You need to understand this. One day in the resurrection, you will be as lovely and as lovable as Jesus is. But you are already as loved as Jesus is right now because you've been united to him by faith. That's good news, isn't it? And you have that because God is your Father through the grace of adoption. Now, the King's Church, like our church, is in the Protestant tradition, which is ruggedly committed to the doctrine of justification, the idea that God forgives your sin and declares you righteous on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. He imputes Christ's righteousness to you. That is the basis of your standing before God. It's a glorious doctrine. It's a beautiful doctrine. We should preach it loud. We should preach it twice. Justification is glorious, but it's not the only blessing of the gospel. And it's not the highest blessing of the gospel either. The highest blessing of the gospel and the blessing, I believe, under which we are meant to understand and organize our lives as Christians is the blessing of adoption. Knowing God as your father. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of our redemption. J.I. Packer says, if you want to understand how well someone understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of having God as his father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Adoption is yours and the father's riches are yours because of your union with Christ. 
This is why, even going back to the first century in a Roman culture that did not value human life, if a child was born who was unwanted for any reason because of deformity or because of sickness or even because of a gender that wasn't desirable in the culture of that day, they would just go outside the gates of the city and leave children on the hillside to die of exposure to the elements. And what would the Christians do? They would scan the horizon and they would look for children who were abandoned and they would go and they would gather those children up in their arms and they would take them into their homes and they would raise them as their own children. Just as a, as a brief aside while we're on the subject of adoption, would you, would you allow me just to take a second and just commend this congregation for your love for vulnerable children through adoption and foster care? God redeems a people to make them redemptive. He loves and welcomes orphans like you and me so that we can welcome and love orphans. And I praise God for how your church is excelling in this grace. My wife Katie and I, we have two children by the grace of adoption who we adopted from Uganda in 2013. And we know how costly it is to follow the heart of our Father in Heaven into the work of adoption and foster care. And by costly, I am not talking about money primarily. The cost that you pay to follow Jesus into that work can be staggering. And if you feel like you're paying it today, I just want to tell you that I see you. But more importantly, God sees you. He loves you. He is for you. He delights in you because he delights in his son, Jesus. And so don't lose heart. Keep going. Stay in the fight. Continue to excel in this grace. I promise you when you get to the last day, you will not regret one moment of struggle for vulnerable children. So continue to excel in this grace. We praise God up in Tallahassee for the work that you're doing here for vulnerable children. Back to the text. Paul calls God our Father, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he's making an important point here. The fatherhood of God is the first form of fatherhood. It pre-exists all creaturely forms of fatherhood and is meant to form the basis of our understanding of what fatherhood is. Every creaturely fatherhood, both in heaven and on earth, is patterned after God's divine fatherhood. It's an image and likeness of his fatherhood. It's not the other way around. And here's a place where we sometimes get, get jammed up. We sometimes read our experience of fatherhood on to God. And I just want to say, maybe, maybe you're here today and you had a terrible dad or an absent dad or a violent or an erratic dad or a dad who was a, who was a tyrant. And if that's your experience, I just want to tell you, I'm so sorry. I want to tell you God's not like that. He's just. He doesn't fly off the handle in fits of rage. He does not abuse those who are entrusted to his protection and care. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he delights in his children. Every family in heaven and on earth comes from God, and fatherhood as a concept, it originates perfectly with him. And Paul prays that this father would bless us according to, to the riches of his glory. And there's something important here to understand about how Paul's sort of scaling his prayer. It's almost as if he's saying, in proportion to the endless wealth of God's greatness and goodness, that's how I want him to bless you. In proportion to how rich 
and full of, of blessing he is. So we understand the difference here between, uh, maybe this is a way to illustrate it, the difference between giving out of your riches and giving according to your riches. Do you understand the difference between those two things? Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Uh, let's say you had like, a, like an uber-wealthy uncle. Like, he's one of these Silicon Valley people who's really profiting off of your attention, right? Uber-wealthy uncle. And let's say you needed money because you wanted to adopt a child or uh, you've accrued some debt, or you've experienced some sort of relational injustice that's created a financial hardship for you, and you explain the situation to him, and you say, Uncle, can you help me? I know you're wealthy. Will you please help me with this need that I have? And with great fanfare and great flourish, he pulls out a $10 bill and puts it on the table. And you say, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's giving out of his riches. But that's not giving according to his riches. Do you understand the difference there? We are acquiring, we are accessing the cash of the riches of God's glory, riches that Paul alluded to in the text you considered a few weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 7. God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is one of my favorite promises in all of the Bible. How long, Christian, is it going to take for God to show you just how rich in mercy and grace he is towards you in Christ Jesus? How long is that going to take? A year? A hundred years? A million years? How about eternity future? That's how long it's going to take for him to unwind and unfold for you just how rich in mercy and kindness he is toward you. And if that's true, if that's the Father to whom we are praying... We should ask for big things. We should pray boldly and with faith, like a child who's not, who's not worried about like transgressing social convention, right? Your kids just ask for stuff. John Newton said in one of his great hymns, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Jesus is fond of asking people in the Gospels, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question if Jesus were to put it to you today? That wayward child's repentance and salvation is not beyond his reach. That healing is not beyond his power to give. That source of pain and despair and devastation that you feel is never going to get healed and never going to get fixed. It's not beyond his power. Ask him. Come to him boldly like a child, trusting that he's good. In prayer, we access the cash of the Father's riches. Third, we'll move a little bit more quickly here. In prayer, we acquire the capacity of the Spirit's power. We acquire the capacity of the Spirit's power. Paul prays that God might strengthen the Ephesians and us with power through the Spirit in our inner being. This is a prayer for power, but a certain kind of power. It's power to overcome sin and to be strengthened, not externally, not to do great things that draw attention to you, but power to be strengthened inwardly. Inward strength like Daniel and his friends had in the coercive captivity of Babylon. Inward strength like Pua and Shifra and the Hebrew midwives had when they courageously and convictionally defied Pharaoh's orders to put to death the firstborn sons in Israel. Inward strength like we see perfectly modeled and personified in Jesus Christ. 
The Spirit wants to form spiritual capacity in our inner being as God fathers us. I wonder if you know anyone who has accessed and internalized the Spirit's capacity in a powerful way. If you know someone who just radiates inward strength. One of our elders at our church went home to be with the Lord last month. His name was Kent. And he lived near me, and for years he would, he would run in our neighborhood. And over time, I watched as he grew older, his run slowly became a walk and sort of became an old man shuffle. You know, the old man shuffle. And not long ago, he had a, he had a stroke, and his physical health began to decline precipitously. But something amazing happened as his physical strength deteriorated. He became more steadfast and radiant in his inner man. Kent was already the most prayerful, reflexively prayerful man I've ever known. In any moment, you brought up anything, you were talking about any issue, Kent wanted to stop, he wanted to pray right there. At his funeral, one of his sons, in a room several times the size of this one, asked, anybody here ever had my dad stop and pray for them? Every single hand in the room went up. And he became even more urgently desperate to pray for people as his health began to decay. His body began to, to betray him, but he acquired the capacity of the Spirit's power as that happened. Some people get older and more harsh, and, and, and as people age, they become more bitter and caustic and cynical. Kent became sweeter. He became more like Jesus. One of my aspirations in this life is to die like my friend Kent did. Never more weak externally, but never more powerful inwardly. Outwardly wasting away. Inwardly being renewed day by day. This is what the Spirit wants to create in us with His work. As the Spirit renews us and forms capacity in our inner being, it forms us into a suitable dwelling place for the presence of Jesus Christ, verse 17 says. Christ makes his home in us. And sometimes uh, it's easy for us to feel like our hearts are more like Airbnbs for Jesus than a dwelling place for Jesus, right? It's like he comes every once in a while for a little bit, but it's a short stay, and then somebody else is living there. And that experience is normal because sin is powerful and it's still present in our lives, but it's not normative for us as God's people. It's normal, but it's not normative. <laughs> Pastor Pat said this last week in his sermon. I was listening to it as I was on my run, and I started crying when he's saying, you know, when, we, when, our, when the horizon of our gaze is on our circumstances and on what we want and what we're not getting, it's so easy for us to lose sight of how powerful God's promise is. But when we remember the story of everything, the story that we've been added into, it totally reframes our experience of those things. Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, says, I cannot begin to answer the question, what must I do, until I have first answered the question, of which story am I a part Christian, what story are you a part of? The Spirit is forming you into a dwelling place for Jesus Christ, a place where he is pleased to make his home. The truth is we are all fixer-uppers, right? But the Spirit is HGTVing us up into a suitable dwelling place for Jesus. And as the Spirit forms us, as Christ takes up residence in us, the result is we become rooted and grounded in love, it creates a sweetness and a stability in our souls. We become a non-anxious presence. 
because we're living out of that, no longer out of the orphan mindset. We're living out of that sonship mindset. This is what it's like to know the nearness of Jesus as he makes his home in you. God wants to get you there, and he wants to get you there by prayer. Because in prayer, we acquire the capacity of the Spirit's indwelling. Fourth and final point. In prayer, we ask for comprehension of Christ's love. Paul makes kind of an amazing request. He prays that we might know that which is unknowable, that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might grasp this thing that we can't get our arms around. He wants us to know the love of Christ. Now, is the love of Christ the love that Christ has for us, or is the love that Christ enjoys as the Son? Well, I think grammatically it could be either, but theologically we know the answer is yes, it's both. He wants us to know the love that Christ has for us. By this we know love, First John tells us, that he laid down his life for us. Christ's self-giving, self-sacrificial love on the cross is how we understand what love is. But it's also the delight that the Father has in the Son. It's notable here that Paul's prayer is not that we would love Christ more. It's that we would grasp his love more, more of his welcome, more of his approval, more of his acceptance, more of his delight, that we would experience it more and more. Paul knows the secret of your endurance in your hardship, in your suffering, the secret of your perseverance, your fruitfulness, your saltiness, your brightness in the places where you live. The key to that, the secret to that, is a lived experience of the love of Christ. It's not do more, try harder. It's not get more stuff done for Jesus. It's look at how loved you are in Jesus Christ. Do you understand the difference that that makes? He wants you in your head and in your heart to comprehend the comprehensiveness of his love. And he goes poetic, so let's go with him. Breadth, length, height, depth. The love of Christ, it's broader than the widest horizon that your eyes have ever seen. It's broad enough to renew the whole creation. We sing it every Christmas. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. His love is broad enough to welcome and reconcile all types of sinners and to make them a family in his church. His love is long. It's love, and it's love that's able to endure from before the foundations of the world and to extend into eternity future. It's love that's long enough to go the distance with us and for us, despite our struggles and our difficulty to receive it and to believe it. His love is long. His love is high. It's higher than the highest heavens, high enough to empty our graves at the resurrection and bring us all the way to the throne where we will be seated with him in the heavenly places. That is spiritually true of us now. We are seated with him in the heavenly places spiritually, but on that day, physically, fully, in a resurrection body. His love is deep. It's deeper than the Mariana Trench. It's deep enough to bring the fullness of God into the body of a baby. It's deep enough to send Jesus to the grave to exhaust fully since power to keep you and to hold you. This is the love of Christ for you. And this is what Paul desperately wants you to have, not only as facts that you understand intellectually, but as a world-tilting reality that you're experiencing in your inner being. Not only is a future promise that we wait for, but as a present reality that we live in, are formed by and filled with. And so the question is, 
How do we get there? How is God going to take us from here to there? By prayer. And so my application for you is real simple, King's Church. Pray. Let's pray. Let's make progress in the gospel. Let's move forward on our knees. Commit to being a church that's going to move forward on your knees together. Get low before the Father. Bow your knees with Paul daily, moment by moment, hour by hour. Discipline your attention to come before him, to give your attention to the things of God. It is through the ordinary practices of the Christian life that God moves us forward in the gospel. So pry your attention away intentionally from the noise and the clamor of this world. Make space to pray. A couple ways you can do this. Set a, start small. Set a 10-minute timer on your phone. Put the phone on the other side of the room. Go sit down and pray. It won't be easy the first time, but you can do it. What I've, my practice has been uh, each morning to read a few chapters of the Word and then pray through a psalm. Then I set an alarm for midday to pray through that same psalm again. Then I set an alarm to pray at the end of that day, pray through that psalm again, just communing with God over his word. Next time you sit down to pray, just take this passage and make it your prayer. Pray for strength by the power of the Spirit. Pray for a fuller experience of the Father's welcome. Pray for a greater indwelling of Christ's presence in you. Pray for a deeper rooting and grounding in Christ's love. Pray for God to be glorified, that his worthiness would shine out of your life, out of your household, out of your church, in your workplace, in your city, and in all the nations. Because that's where Paul ends his prayer. That's the, that's the telos, the trajectory of all of this. It's the fruit of this formation in prayer. It ends in glorious doxology in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Prayer prepares our hearts for glory. Brothers and sisters, Christ's glory is already being seen and savored in this church. And there's a day coming when Christ's glory will be unignorable in Polk County, in Leon County, all over Florida, and in all nations at the resurrection. And God wants to get you to that day. He wants to get you from here to there in prayer because he's a good father. And he loves you. I'll close with this. On July 11th of 2013, um, we boarded our 11.30 p.m. flight in the airport in Entebbe, Uganda. To, uh, to, we had just completed the adoption process, and it was time to journey home. It had been a long five-week process to get that done, and we'd been up since early that morning. And when it was time to sort of buckle in and fly back to Tallahassee, um, we got the kids situated. Titus, he was three at the time. He grabbed the little earbud that they give you for the in-flight movie, popped it in his mouth, and immediately fell asleep. <laughs> Love you, buddy. That was awesome. But when the flight attendants came around and told us it was time to buckle in for takeoff, uh, I reached over and I buckled Eva, who was five years old, in at the time. And I buckled her in, and she looked at me, and I immediately clocked the horror in her eyes. And I realized she'd never been buckled into anything in her life. I may as well have thrown her in a prison cell and shut the door. Not only that, she had a punctured eardrum at the time. And so when the plane taxied for takeoff and began to ascend and the air pressure changed in the cabin, she began to wail and scream in pain. And she continued to weep and wail for hours and hours and hours 
as we made the nine-hour flight to Amsterdam. And I'd only been her father for a few weeks at that point, and she didn't speak any English. And so I did the best I could. I just kept saying, it's okay, it's okay, I love you, it's okay, I love you. And I couldn't explain to her everything that was going on, and I wanted so desperately to be able to help her understand. I wanted to say, all of this that you're experiencing now is about getting you home. And home is absolutely incredible. You've got grandparents there and aunties and uncles who are ready to spoil you rotten. You've got a church family who loves you and has been praying and giving generously to get you here. You've got two sisters who have been ready to love you and receive you since the moment they knew you existed. And a home is where we get to be a forever family. It's where you're going to be safe with me. That's what's waiting for you on the other side of, the, of this experience and all the poverty and the hopelessness and the destitution of your former life as an orphan. You're leaving that forever so that you can go home. And this current experience, this present circumstance is the necessary means by which your father's going to get you there. So hang on. Trust me. Christian, you have been adopted by a father who loves you who knows what you need and who is committed to giving it to you. And even though there are times when the way feels torturous and difficult, home is where we are headed. And God wants to teach you how to pray because prayer is how he is going to get you from here to there. Let's pray. Father, in approaching you, we both bow before royalty and leap into the arms of our Father. We ask that you would change us by the Spirit's power. May we grasp and comprehend that which cannot be grasped, the love of God in Christ. May we be formed more into the image of Christ. Would you teach us how to pray? Would you continue to have your hand on all of my brothers and sisters here? Thank you, Jesus, that you are interceding for us even now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are groaning with groanings too deep for words, for the things that we can't even name and face, much less pray. You are praying for us. So make us into a praying people, we pray, for your glory and our joy. Amen.